0: Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We're turni- returning to the Russia Ukraine conflict for today's show, uh, but we'll. From an historical foundation before we get into questions of policy. Our guest today is Professor Michael Kimmage from the Catholic University of, Washington, of the United States in Washington, DC. Uh, Michael Kimmage has a wide ranging academic policy and think tank experience. His expertise is on the former Soviet Union, the transatlantic relationship and the history of US foreign policy. This particular area of focus is the US Russian relationship. Kimmage is chair of the history department at Catholic University. He's also the author of The Conservative Turn, Lionel Trilling Whitaker Chambers and the Lessons of Anti-Communism, published by Harvard University Press in 2009. And his most recent book, published in 2020 by Basic Books, is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. From 2014 to 2016, Kimmage served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. He's a frequent contributor to Foreign Affairs, the New Republic, the National Interest, International Politique, and War on the Rocks. Professor Kimmage is is, uh, on the advisory board, chairs the advisory board at the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, and he serves on the advisory board of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Professor Michael Kimmage, welcome to National Security this week.
1: John, thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, Where are you seated this morning? We're on Zoom, you and me, so we can see each other, but.
1: I am on the campus of Catholic University in Washington D.C.
0: So, interestingly enough, for our listeners, I'm actually doing this show remotely from a hotel room in Crystal City. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Washington D.C. Just across uh, the river in Washington for a conference over at the Defense Intelligence Agency later this afternoon. Uh, Professor Kimage, let's be, Let's get our get into some discussions. I want to learn a little bit more about you, so our audience knows who you are. You spent the bulk of your academic career. Looking at Cold War history with a specialization in the study of the Soviet Union and Russia, uh, you also speak fluent Russian and fluent German. Uh, that's that's somewhat rare in in the West. What was it about Russia that attracted you when you pursued your undergraduate degree at Oberlin and, and Oxford, and your graduate degrees, including your doctorate at Harvard University? Well, I have a
1: family connection, not not quite to Russia, but sort of to the to the to the region. Uh, and so, you know, the language was was sort of a hovering presence in my childhood, grew up in upstate New York in the 1980s, uh, and the Cold War was uh, in many ways present. There was an Air Force base in our town, and we just felt linked to the story that was happening over there uh, in the Soviet Union, which was, of course, enormously dramatic at the time. Mikhail Gorbachev, Perestroika, Glasnost to follow the Berlin Wall, uh, you know, I was uh, a sort of teenager when that happened and was was captivated by that. Uh, And then as a college undergraduate, you know, the Soviet Union splintered into these different countries. It was a new Europe that was uh, created. And I can certainly remember uh, the optimism uh, of that time. It really felt like a new beginning. So again, it was a very interesting moment to be uh, studying these issues. Uh, And so I immersed myself more and more in the history of the Cold War, uh, which felt like it wasn't really over in the 1990s. I'm not sure it's over today, uh, but uh, it felt like fresh and, and and salient history. And then I was lucky to study in the UK and to study in Germany and to uh, sort of travel in the region that added a few other uh, pieces to the, uh, to the puzzle. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, I had two years where I had the privilege of serving in the US government and working on Russia and Ukraine. And I think that the idea then, uh, the boss that I had in the Office of Policy Planning is himself a historian. The idea then was that the history really matters uh, and that we need to bring the history to bear on the crisis that was 2014, 2015, to fashion good policy. And I very much believe that. Uh, And I really believe in the back and forth between the patterns of history, uh, what it teaches us about geography, what it teaches us about military capacity, ideology, all the motivations that go into warfare, and I believe that that really has to be in the back of people's minds when they address the big, uh, the big policy questions. So that's the interface that I'm really interested in working on, and I'm constantly going back and forth. What's the policy question of the moment, and where might history help us to to figure it
0: out? That, that, that's a, the old saying, uh, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Right.
1: I think it's true. Yeah, uh, or at least doomed to to a certain kind of ignorance which is which is really not what policymakers can afford so it's 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 an it's not the only ingredient to be sure uh, but it's a very very important
0: one yeah it, 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 it has such a tremendous bearing on kind of cultural norms and and that those influences on how policymakers think about issues
1: and in the case of uh the current crisis it's obvious that Putin is obsessed with history uh, yeah. and I'm sure John you and I would not Agree with a lot of what he says about uh, about history, but even to know that how history can be a motivating force for uh, for political actors, you know, Hitler was obsessed with history in his own way, I think Stalin was uh, as well, maybe Saddam Hussein, you could sort of put into that category, these are all rulers that had a historical imagination, uh, and you want to factor that in, even if you find it repugnant and crazy and and, and deluded.
0: Right. Uh, so I taught the lecture that you gave on the Russia-Ukraine conflict that ran on uh, C-SPAN 3 some time ago, I think it was maybe early fall, uh, and I contacted you after I saw that to see if we could get you on the show. Uh, if we could, Professor, uh, let, let's dive into our subject for today by providing listeners with a way to frame Russia's view of Ukraine uh, based on Cold War history, and, and maybe even going back further into the old Russian empire.
1: Yes, Um you know, I think that there are two levels on which you can frame Russia's view uh, of Ukraine. And I'll I'll start with the more benign one. You could say on the popular level uh, that Russia and Ukraine uh, are neighbors uh, and in so many ways uh, deeply intertwined, that there is uh, among peoples uh, an extraordinary back and forth between these two cultures. Uh, I hope that Ukrainians wouldn't take issue with the point uh and feel like I'm you know sort of uh merging the two countries which is not what I have in mind but you know the border currently is if I think about 12,000 miles or 12,000 kilometers between uh um, 1200 rather miles or kilometers between Russia uh and Ukraine and what's a very important regional dynamic is the scale of intermarriage uh, so even mm-hmm. if you look at the names in the Kremlin uh, and go into their family backgrounds. Half of them are, you know, sort of Russian-Ukrainian. That would be true in the scheme of things for Gorbachev, for Khrushchev, uh, for 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 Brezhnev in the in the in the recent past. But uh, there are commonalities of cuisine, there are commonalities of language, there are commonalities of uh, of religion, and since the 17th century, there have been commonalities of uh, of 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 politics as well. There's a distinctive Ukrainian culture that. Uh, for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, there is this kind of back and forth uh, on the popular level. And that was especially so in the Soviet period when it was one country and a lot of people in the Russian part of it would have their vacations in Ukraine or, uh, you know, sort of, again, family ties uh, and, and and ties of emotion uh, and, uh, and sentiment. I mean, on the Ukrainian side, it's obviously more complicated, but you could look at figures like Petro Poroshenko, the leader of Ukraine before uh before Volodymyr Zelensky and a lot of his business activity was uh in uh Russia and Zelensky himself uh, is a native Russian speaker whose entertainment career was as much in Russia as it was in Ukraine uh before he became the president of Ukraine so that's there in the background uh and that can be a good thing in the sense that you know, neighbors uh have a, have a tendency toward integration you could think of the United States and Canada uh in this regard of the United States and Mexico. The other track, though, is, is a lot less benign, uh, and this is on the level of political elites. Uh, and it's, of course, necessary to begin with the fact that Russia, since the 16th, 17th century, has been an empire uh, and has added territory, uh, you know, sort of continuously from the 16th century to the, uh, to the 20th century. Uh, and part of that story of empire has been a, a will to dominate what you could describe as the Ukrainian lands uh and you know that's a military story uh and that's uh, a political story but it's also uh, an ideological story so there is a narrative that has been developed that you could describe as the russian imperial narrative which is that ukraine is sort of the birthplace of a larger russia uh and that larger russia is entitled to ukraine because ukraine is this organic part of Uh, of russia and that's an ideological story that is told to which ukrainians have very powerful uh, objections but it undergirds this uh sort of effort or will to control uh ukrainian territory now if you want to take the russian view of things or a russian view of things you could say a part of this is about defending mother russia from outside invasion from napoleon from hitler from uh the west but you know that's uh, a very subjective uh, point of view. To Ukrainians, this very often looks like an offensive posture, uh, where it's an empire that's uh, out to out to dominate. And that's certainly there on the elite level. And one of the best exemplars of that worldview is, of course, Vladimir Putin.
0: So it's based on what you're saying is that there's a there's a very long history there on the part of the Russian people. And I'm just going to make a, a comment, something that I experienced myself. Uh, when I was deployed into Bosnia Herzegovina, uh, 1999, I, I got on the ground there uh, just towards the end of the NATO air campaign against Serbia over the issue of Serbia sending troops into Kosovo. So you're talking about, I mean, this is a; these are all Slavic peoples, right, connected back through Ukraine and and into into Russia, and uh, talk about long memory, long histories, you know, on the part of the Slavic peoples. Uh, they came up on the anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo Polje, which was seven hundred and some years in the past, and there were Serbs, Bosnian Serbs, who were still angry about having lost that battle to the to the Ottoman Empire seven hundred and some years later. And that, to me, as an American, was just a, I, I just could not compute uh, that that view of things. Is that kind of what you've seen in your historical studies of Russia and Ukraine and whatnot? This really long. History of that the peoples have going back centuries.
1: That is very true. Certainly on uh, on both sides, there's a very long uh, historical memory. You could sort of pick out one example with 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 Putin. Uh, his first name is Vladimir, and then he has a patronymic, which is a, a feature of of the Russian language. He takes his father's name as his middle name,
2: Vladimirovich,
1: uh, and so that's Putin twice named after. Uh, Prince Vladimir, St. Vladimir, uh, who uh, roughly a thousand years ago Mm -hmm. is understood to have brought Christianity to the Eastern Slavic uh, lands, uh, and he's claimed as a great hero of Ukraine uh, and founder of the Ukrainian state, but obviously has uh, a role to play in the narrative I was just describing of sort of organic Russia uh, connection. Uh, and this might all seem like uh, ancient history uh, and ancient symbols, but Putin put a statue of Prince Vladimir outside the Kremlin. And I think it plays a role in the way that he looks at uh, Ukraine and even the way that he looks at the military si- situation in Ukraine. So the history is there, it's a part of the sensibility. That's very true. Uh, and that's distant from, I think, our experience as Americans, but it also Moves political leaders in certain ways. And that, too, I think is a bit far into our experience.
0: Yeah. Uh, for our audience, to to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Michael Kimmage from Catholic University, and we're discussing the war in Ukraine. Uh, we're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, to continue our our study of this topic, uh, Professor Kimmage, what, what can you tell us about? US Russian relations since the collapse of the Soviet Union. You hear a lot about this uh you know different different sources sort of frame it differently. How has the deterioration of those relations contributed to Russia's invasion of Ukraine?
1: Right. Well, this is I think really one of the uh of the key questions uh and in some ways there were a lot of bright spots after 1991. In the 1990s, uh, you know, Russia and the United States buried the hatchet to a great degree. Uh, there were lots of meetings between Bill Clinton and and, and Boris Yeltsin. It was called the, the Bill and Boris show uh, in the 1990s. And I think that they genuinely liked each other and were invested in building a better relationship, a better Europe, uh, a better world. And, you know, that's uh, sincerely a part of the uh, of the story, you have what was called the reset between 2008 and 2012. This was with Dmitry Medvedev, who was you know, president of Russia uh, of a kind. I mean, Putin was kind of lurking behind him, but he was there uh, as the president and he and Obama did achieve quite a bit of stuff together, arms control. Russia at the time was helping the U.S. with its military operations in, uh, in Afghanistan. There was some counter-terrorism that the U.S. and Russia uh, did uh together uh and you know the trump years are difficult to characterize but um you know there weren't that many overt clashes between russia and the u s uh in the in the trump years uh and it was a bit hard to anticipate that things would go in the direction that they did in 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 twenty twenty two back in uh in those years so it's not all darkness uh there have been you know ups as well as uh as downs but i think deterioration is exactly the right word uh the word that you use in your in your question, the way that I understand it uh, is that the two countries, and I really have Russian leadership in mind here because I think Russia as a country could be more diverse than that, but the two countries really have different worldviews. And that when the United States, especially regarding Europe, when the United States looks at Europe, uh, what the U.S. says is we fought two world wars uh, in Europe over the kind of nationalism uh, that the Europeans had and the way that people pushed, big countries pushed small countries around. And so we really needed in 1945 and then again in the 1990s to build a peaceful order in Europe where every country would sort of have a place and conquest and imperialism would be a thing of the uh, of the past. Uh, and that's been a pretty successful project for the U.S. And it's one that the U.S. has really invested in Democrats, Republicans. I think Trump maybe is a bit of an outlier in this respect, but we can save that topic for another uh, for another for another conversation. But most American presidents have had that view. Certainly Biden does Obama, George W. Bush. Reagan, You know, that's that's, that's kind of mainstream American uh, policy, uh, and it's very important to the U.S. You know, I think Putin uh, and the people in the Kremlin look at the world entirely differently, uh, a more zero-sum view of the world. The view is the world is a rough place, Uh, countries uh, attack each other, it's a dog-eat-dog world, uh, and you kind of have to defend yourself in this world. Uh, And what Russia has, to Russia's regret, is a very insecure border with Europe. Uh, and it's sort of necessary uh, to shore up that border. So there was what we were talking about before, the sort of imperial view, Ukraine and Russia as bound together, kind of a cultural uh, ideological perspective. But there's also a national security perspective that sees as sort of much power, influence, and territory on the Russian side as to the good. Uh, and you know, in that sense, Russia and the US just clash uh, over Europe. So it's not a small difference of opinion. It's not as if they're arguing over a little piece of territory and just can't work it out it's a difference of worldviews it's a difference of what right and wrong looks like it's a difference of how Europe should be configured and you know I think that that makes this conflict something of a profound conflict and unfortunately one that's probably likely to stick around for for quite a long time
0: as you've said uh, you know Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union I, I mean Vladimir Putin has figured very prominently in Russian politics for a good portion of that time. Uh, was was there like a, a specific incident that happened uh, or a series of incidents that happened that sort of pushed Vladimir Putin in the direction of we have to vilify the West? That I think is done for internal political consumption and solidifying his power base inside Russia but it also puts Russia and the US and and our West, you know, allies in the West sort of at cross purposes at loggerheads uh, based on the rhetoric. Was there something that triggered that or what do you think?
1: Yeah, uh, there are a lot of things you can say in response. One is that this is a strain in Russian life, Russian politics, Russian culture, going back uh, to the 18th and 19th century. And for, you know, fans of literature, you would want to look at Dostoevsky here. He was a great writer, a powerful figure, And was deeply skeptical about Western life and Western culture, Western politics, and uh, he put a lot of that skepticism uh, into his literature. It's definitely a part of the Soviet experience where the West was regularly demonized, capitalist West, a kind of uh, a certain story that was uh, that was told. uh, And it's something that Putin has not had to invent in Russian life. It's something he's just had to uh, had to tap into. So just a few points about Putin himself, I think. You know, he lives through the collapse of the Soviet Union, not as uh, an unambiguous good for Russia, but as a loss, uh, and that Russia lost territory and influence uh, in Eastern Europe. Of course, Putin was a KGB agent in the East German city of Dresden when the wall came down, uh, and that, you know, I think gave him a particular uh, vantage point. Uh, You know, I think that there's a confusing period with Putin when he comes to power in 2000 where he looks like something of a modernizer who's going to make a good relationship with the West. So he's the first person to call George W. Bush after 9-11. He speculates about Russia joining NATO in 2002. And he seems to want to bring, you know, Western politics and economics to Russia on the surface, at least. But that Putin didn't last very long. And I'm not quite sure, sure why he starts to become more repressive in Russia. He was never a fan of democracy that was there from the Uh, from the start. uh, And the foreign policy just hardens and radicalizes uh, over time. So 2007, Putin goes to Munich, to the Munich Security Conference, and he gives this fire-breathing speech about how the U.S. is screwing up the world and destabilizing things and guilty for Iraq and, and, and for many other things. And that's a speech. But then a year after that, you have the Russian invasion of Georgia, where the U.S. and Russia are really coming down on different sides of uh, of the military equation. And to so 2014, you have the annexation of Crimea, invasion of Eastern Ukraine, pretty big steps. A lot of that is accompanied by mass media vilification of the West inside of Russia. You have tension in Syria, uh, 2015 meddling in the US election, 2016, which is a huge step uh, to take. Uh, and then of course, you know, 2021, 2022, uh, Putin goes off the deep end and uh not only engages in a horrific uh and massive war uh but really throws down the gauntlet to the united states uh and to the west if we think that we're a small part of this war we're making a mistake putin is making a bet Uh against the united states a bet against the west with the war and that's something that americans have to be very uh aware of it's not a local conflict way over in eastern europe on the other side of the world between people who are far away from us and don't matter that much it is something that really it involves the U.S., and it involves the U.S. because of Putin's, what you would have to describe as his hatred of the West at the present
0: moment. Yeah, that, that's a great way to frame it. I do want to get into uh, to those discussions about the war and the, uh, uh, the implications for that conflict uh, in, in, between Russia and Ukraine. I would highlight for our listeners that you had two articles that just came out almost simultaneously, uh, one called Wartime Putinism, which you co-authored with uh, Maria Lipman. Uh, and that was for Foreign Affairs, I believe. And then Putin's Last Stand, The Promise and Peril of Russian Defeat, uh, which you co-authored with uh, Lyanna Fix, also in, in Foreign Affairs. Those are both excellent articles and I think our, our listeners would love to read those things. Uh, let's pivot over to Ukraine's perspective. I want to make sure we get a little balanced view here. Uh, what, what are the key historical points to consider from Ukraine's perspective as, as we review sort of the lead-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine?
1: Right. Well, let me... Uh... Just give a little bit of background, historical background about uh, Ukraine uh, up until 1991, and then and say a few words about the the lead up to where we are at the at the present moment. So, uh, Ukraine is a distinctive identity, uh, culture, uh, uh, people that uh, in the modern period um, was you know sort of colonized from without uh, by various different powers. This was the Russian Empire uh, up until the 19th century. In the eastern side it was austro hungary or the Habsburg Empire. Uh, on the western side, after the First World War, Ukraine is one of the big losers at the Treaty of, uh, of Versailles. It doesn't get a nation of its own, uh, and you know it's a complicated story, but an interesting one. Uh, and the western part of Ukraine falls within Poland. Eastern part falls uh, within the Soviet Union after the First World War. After the Second World War. Stalin is able to take all of Ukraine and put it into the Soviet Union. Uh, And that means in 1991, when the Soviet Union unravels, you get an independent Ukraine that's uh, a large country, 40 million in in population and territorially uh, very uh, significant. Now, that country undergoes the difficulties of the transition from the Soviet period to the post-Soviet period. Those are economic difficulties. Those are political difficulties. And so poverty has been a consistent problem. Uh, in Ukraine, and you had a kind of back and forth pattern in Ukrainian politics where some leaders of Ukraine would incline a little bit more to the East and toward Russia. Others would incline a bit more toward the West and toward, uh, and toward Europe. Uh, and that was a kind of, in a sense, not very dramatic uh, story of Ukrainian politics. And that comes to an end in 2014 when the pro Russian figure, Viktor Yanukovych, flees the country in February of 2014. And then Russia immediately annexes Crimea and so that really creates a new kind of country that is uh more unified around Ukrainianness much more skeptical or opposed uh to Russian influence uh and that uh is the country that is in a sense created you could almost say created by Vladimir Putin uh in 2014 that's a very important background to what we have at the present moment between 2014 in 2021, I wouldn't give Ukrainian politicians, this would be Petro Poroshenko and Volodymyr Zelensky. I would not give them great grades on their domestic politics. <laughs> There's a lot of reform that they could have done. There's a lot that they could have done to make Ukraine sort of more you know, economically viable, uh, breaking down some of the, uh, the sort of patterns of the past. That's an important conversation to be had, and that's uh, a part of the sto- story, I suppose, Uh, But what matters more is that Poroshenko and Zelensky uh, did two things. First of all, Poroshenko invested in Ukraine's military modernization after 2014 uh, because he knew that the country was under duress. And he starts to increase cooperation with the United States, with NATO on a certain level, with countries in Europe. But at the same time, in 2019, Ukraine holds a real democratic election. And, you know, Zelensky comes into office 47 years old, former comedian, looks kind of like a lightweight, maybe. Maybe it's a kind of strange episode in Ukrainian politics. Maybe, but he's genuinely elected. Uh, He has the legitimacy that comes from being genuinely elected. And you don't see the regional divisions in 2019 in the voting patterns behind uh, Zelensky. So we can all celebrate what Zelensky has done since the beginning of the war. He's obviously got extraordinary qualities of courage and, and leadership, that's for sure. But he's also got a foundation. Uh, to build on, of a legitimate government and a country that knows what it is. And that's not Zelensky's creation. That's not what Zelensky sort of snapped his fingers and brought into into existence uh, overnight. That's been developing in Ukraine, obviously, long before 2014, but in a special way since uh, 2014. So Putin, who believes himself to be a master strategist, has done something really quite counterproductive in his terms, uh, which is to create a Ukraine that uh, is enduring, cohesive, and uh, and militarily viable? Do
0: You think the annexation of uh, of Crimea sparked sort of a, a feeling of country identity and a bit of nationalism on the part of the Ukrainians? Is that what I hear you saying? Well, you know,
1: uh, nationalism is a little bit of a complicated word. Um, uh, sure. When it, when it when it comes to Ukraine, it, it can be associated with the sort of western parts, and um, you know. Would sometimes describe in Eastern Europe as sort of ethno nationalism, and that's you know there as 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 as, as part of the story. Um, I think what may be more important after twenty fourteen is a kind of sense of civic patriotism, uh, and patriotism that encompasses those who are Orthodox Christians and Catholics, and of course Zelensky himself has sort of Jewish background. So. Uh, There's a pluralism in Ukraine. That's a very important fact of Ukrainian life, religious pluralism. You know, the Ukrainian language, Russian language or have in the past been used sort of uh, across the the country and it has regional uh, variety as well. So it's not, you know, sort of classic nationalism, as you might find in Lithuania or Poland, you know, sort of one language, one identity, one church, uh, (laughs) one sort of sensibility, but patriotism, a kind of civic patriotism. Uh, that incorporates these uh, these sort of differences. And that's what 2014, and before that, of course, the Maidan revolution, the kind of uprising that took place starting in November uh, 2013 was a stimulus to that. It's a very important factor in the war because there's been a lot of volunteer activity. There's been a lot of sort of ground up patriotism and civic commitment that has kept Ukraine afloat during uh, the war. So we need to figure out where that comes from and to sort of go back to 2014 and earlier and think about that. That storyline again. I think Zelensky is extremely important. I worry a little bit that our media makes this too much of a Zelensky story and maybe not enough of a Ukraine story.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's important to highlight that there is a significant difference between what patriotism is and what nationalism is,
1: especially in Eastern Europe, where you know nationalism is a pretty it's a pretty fraught subject. Uh, and you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Also, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but you know, Ukraine and Poland have historically very bad relations. There are a lot of atrocities committed uh you know sort of in the past and issues of territory and problems and one of the interesting dynamics of the current war has been uh the ability of ukraine and poland not to get mired in that stuff and part of that is is because ukraine is not pushing a hard nationalist line but they are patriotic and uh and and committed to ukraine but that's the way in which uh you know nationalism could get ukraine into trouble yeah uh
0: professor michael kimmage we we need to take just a Very short break, about a 60-second break, as we recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. So I'll send it back to the studio.
2: National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org.
0: And we're back with uh, Professor Michael Kimmage from Catholic University here in Washington, D.C. Professor Kimmage, you, you actually spent time Uh, At the U.S. Department of State from 2014 to 2016, you led the Russia-Ukraine desk during that time frame. Uh, We should remind people just once again that Russia seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014 and that other portions of Ukraine have also been claimed by Russia since that time as well, specifically the Donbass region. Uh, Can you clarify for our listeners what the Russian claims are to these two areas of Ukraine? Uh, Do Russian claims have any merit or is this just nonsense uh, from a moot point really in, in history, global history?
1: Well, it it depends a little bit on how you see uh, merit. Certainly, from the vantage point of international law, uh, there's no merit to these claims, uh, and certainly from the vantage point of of, of treaties and commitments uh, to which Russia was a signatory uh, in the 1970s and thereafter, committing itself to the sovereignty of uh, of Ukraine, sovereignty of the countries of uh, of Europe. There's certainly no merit whatsoever in annexation or uh, or invasion, so uh, you know there's no way in which I think uh, people outside of Russia would give the time of day to any of these uh, of, of these claims. And it's certainly the position of the U.S. government that these claims are are, are fundamentally uh, without uh, merit. Beyond that, U.S. sees these claims as very uh, dangerous, as the as the rudiments of an international order that's really unacceptable to the uh, to the United States. But uh, to understand the thinking of Putin, uh, which is of course an important Uh, an important endeavor, uh, we would want to understand what he uh, had in mind. I mean, I think that the easiest way to understand the annexation of Crimea is uh, as a kind of grab, something that, that Putin grabbed from Ukraine when Ukraine was in a period of real turmoil because the leader of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, flees Ukraine for Russia in the third week of February 2014. Annexation of Crimea begins almost immediately. The Ukrainian government was in a state of paralysis and it was uh really a bloodless invasion on the part of uh on the part of Russia so it was done because it was possible and then you have a certain amount of turmoil in Eastern Ukraine and Russia I think felt the need to insert itself so on the one level Russia was really improvising in 2014. uh and it felt like a set of opportunities that sort of fell into Russia's lap because Ukraine was in a state of uh, sort of disarray political disarray uh for 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 a certain amount of time and so that's one way in which uh sort of Crimea and Eastern Ukraine uh was approached secondly um for russian strategy uh and for russian national security ukraine in general is important uh and crimea and eastern ukraine are in a sense very important and crimea is just unusual uh in in this regard it was a part of russia until 1954 uh the russian Soviet soviet socialist republic and khrushchev gave it as a gift to ukraine in 1954 uh on the spur of the moment uh and that has always annoyed Russians uh when you know the Soviet Union fell apart and Crimea ended up in an independent Ukraine that was understood to be annoying a lot of the population of Ukraine prior to 2014 was you have to use the term loosely but sort of ethnic Russian pro-Russian highly Russian speaking there was a hiccup of separatism in Ukraine in the in the 1990s and it was good material for Putin to work with and then most unusual of all Russia was leasing from the government of Ukraine its naval port in Sevastopol in in Crimea. Uh, So that meant that the Russian military was already there in Crimea in 2014. So annexation was especially, in a sense, convenient or easy. And a lot of population of Crimea was retirees from the Russian military who were pro-Putin, had a certain political bent that, again, made it very different from the rest of Uh, of the rest of Ukraine. But Crimea is strategically important to Russia. That's clear. It's strategically important to the Black Sea. And, you know, that was another motivation that Putin had for for annexation. Eastern Ukraine is much more chaotic and difficult to to figure out. I think that Putin wanted to just create a poison pill for the new government in Ukraine. He didn't like them. He wanted to create chaos. This was a kind of lever. It was a sort of mess. Uh, And what was convenient to Putin on a certain, you know, level was that he could up the level of chaos, if he wanted to, he could scale it back. It made Russia a part of the diplomacy of Ukraine. So it seemed to give Putin influence in Ukraine. But I wonder if Putin wasn't deluding himself about that, because it poisoned the relationship with the West, what Russia was up to in eastern Ukraine, but it also poisoned the relationship between the Russian government and the people of Ukraine, which I can't imagine is really in Russia's long-term interest. So I think that there are ways in which the annexation of Crimea and Russian invasion of of eastern Ukraine, or the Donbass, as it's sometimes called, there are ways in which that really backfired for Putin. We tend to think of why did Putin do this and how was Putin trying to gain? And it made him more popular, the annexation of Crimea in Russia. But I think it also created for him a set of problems that became unresolvable. And his resolution then was to invade on a huge scale in February 2022. And that's gone very badly for Russia. So in a sense, the mistake of 2022, it begins in Crimea for Russia. That's, that's my take, at least.
0: Yeah. From One more question from a historical perspective. If we think back uh, to the Crimean War, uh, Crimea was part of the Russian Empire back then. And the Western powers, the Brits, uh, uh, landed there, carried out a siege for a while. I mean, that was a full-scale war. That was not – I mean, so historically, Crimea has been part of Russia. Uh, I just want to reemphasize that because there's a question I want to ask you later in the show about outcomes, uh, peaceful outcomes. Uh, in, in the meantime, I want to get to the Ukrainian side of this. Ukraine flatly rejects all of these Russian claims to sovereign Ukrainian territory. Uh, is Ukraine right to hold these positions on the Donbas and in Crimea, uh, considering where things are at, are at in the modern world?
1: Absolutely. I think that there, are, you know, is the easy answer to your question, which is that um, you know, for any country, the most important thing that you can do is defend yourself uh, and you know, defend the territory uh that you have and it wasn't catastrophic for all of Ukraine when Russia annexed Crimea and took over the the Donbass I was with my State Department colleagues in Kiev in January of 2016 and Kiev didn't feel like it was a city at war then it was a thriving happy uh metropolis and a lot of Ukraine was flourishing then so yes it didn't devastate the country 100 percent. these actions uh but it's a terrible thing uh to lose territory uh psychologically uh, and uh, it, uh, it just violates a country's basic uh, integrity. So there's that answer to the question. But there's another answer to the question, which is, uh, in a sense, more ominous. What Russia did with Crimea after 2014 was to heavily militarize it. It was militarized already, but that proceeded apace. The same was true of, of those territories that Russia controlled in eastern Ukraine. And then it used those militarized territories to invade the the country, going for the capital city, making a lunge at taking over the whole country so even if it was a kind of legal abstract question crimea about sovereignty about independence that is about treaties and the kind of stuff of diplomacy even if it were that um it would be bad but this military component makes it terrible for ukraine to have russians present on uh their soil uh in this way and you know that's going to be a huge huge challenge for the ukrainian government coming going forward because they really can't compromise uh, on the details, uh, and yet the military configuration, I know that we're going to get into that in a moment, the military configuration for Ukraine that will be necessary to take back all of its territory, uh, that's not going to be easy to uh, to acquire. But there's no way I think in the future any leader of Ukraine, whether it's Zelensky, whether it's somebody else, could tolerate uh, the dividing up of its territory.
0: Yeah. Uh, Professor Kimmage, let's let's look at possible outcomes in this conflict. I mean, it's been going on for almost a year, a year in in February, late February. It seems pretty unlikely right now that Russia will achieve the war aims that uh, Vladimir Putin stated at the start of the invasion, the the quote-unquote special military operation as he framed it back in February of 2022. Uh, It's also entirely possible Russia might be forced to withdraw completely from Ukraine as Western assistance to Ukraine is, is clearly tilting things in Ukraine's favor. Uh, Much more, uh, well, not a lot, but some, uh, much more advanced ground combat uh, equipment is heading their way. Uh, We'll see how much the the NATO allies actually deliver, but uh, some of it's heading that way. The Biden administration, our NATO allies, and the EU, the European Union, have all stated it's up to Ukraine and uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky to accept whatever peace offers might be on the table. Not that there's been a lot of discussion on that yet, but. But from a regional historical perspective, and in your study of Russian history and diplomacy, what do you think are some possible outcomes that we could see in this conflict?
1: Right. It's, um, it's really the question of the hour. It's the most important question for the Biden administration. Uh, and I think it's a question that matters a lot. I'll go back just to American citizens to say that this war is about us in some ways, because that's how Putin has defined it. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. is going to be a very important part of whatever a solution comes in the future. So I think we as American citizens need to think about what the stakes are for us and what kind of outcomes would be tolerable uh, and desirable. And unfortunately, it's a very, very hard question. As long as Putin remains in power, and that could be for a while. The piece that you mentioned, the wartime Putinism piece, suggests that the war is in many ways an empty operation for Russia because they're not going to win it. Uh, but, uh, you know, Putin has enough tools of repression and, you know, enough Russians don't want to lose the war that I think he can keep it going for uh, a while. And I think that we can assume that Putin will never compromise on Ukraine.
0: Yeah.
1: He's not going to give up Crimea, not willingly. uh, And I doubt that he's going to give up the territories in the Donbass. That was in the bizarre ways in which Putin justified the war at the beginning. That was supposed to be the the thrust of things, the kind of uh, integration of these two regions, Donetsk and Luhansk and the Donbass into Russia, that hasn't panned out very well for for Russia. But if you define that war, the war that way in the beginning, I think that those are war names that are going to be very difficult for him uh, to give up. So he's going to throw everything he can at this conflict to at least prevent himself from, uh, from, from losing it. I think that we have to just take that as a kind of basic assumption. Putin could fall military setbacks could really create domestic political problems for putin he's not you know um as masterful as he thinks he is uh he has a lot of vulnerabilities and weaknesses that's very true but i think those are for the medium term i just don't see them coming to the fore in the short term but i would be happy to be proved wrong on that uh on that point you know i think that ukraine has a different uh a different set of challenges they've performed i think better than many Ukrainians expected and many Western <laughs> uh, observers expected. Uh, and that goes back to what we were talking about before, that there's been a strong sense of patriotism and, uh, and national commitment, uh, but also just in raw military terms, I think that the leadership has been, uh, has been excellent. And they have handed Russia a series of major defeats around Kiev, around Chernigov, around Kharkiv, around Kherson, and who knows where the next uh, defeat may come to, uh, to Russia. So that's an extraordinary story. Uh, and I think the Biden administration should be credited for the uh, the quality uh, of the support that it's given to Ukraine. That's intelligence sharing, that's military support, uh, and that's the construction of a of a coalition that's that's supporting Ukraine. That's not just Europe, but also Japan and South Korea, Singapore, Australia, uh, Canada. Something that's really quite uh, quite formidable. So the fundamentals have have turned out well for Ukraine, uh, and I think that they will continue to turn out. Uh, well, but I am skeptical that Ukraine will be able to take back Crimea, uh, and I am skeptical that Ukraine will be able to push Russia all the way out of the uh, of the Donbass. And I also don't believe that a negotiated settlement uh, is, uh, is realistic. Obviously, the Biden administration needs to talk at every turn about diplomacy. You don't ever cut that off as an option. I hope that there are back channels between Washington and uh, and Moscow, who knows You know when Moscow may change its calculus, we can't prejudge that. So the diplomatic conversation needs to be kept uh, open, but I just don't see it bearing fruit for the, for the first reason that I mentioned, that Putin is not going to give up on this endeavor. So my conclusion, maybe coming a little bit full circle in our conversation, is that we will go back to where we were in the 1940s with something like containment. I don't think we're going to find anything as neat as a Berlin Wall between Russia and Ukraine. I don't think that there'll be a clear line. But it will be, I think, a balance between the military forces on the Ukrainian side and Russia's military forces. And there will be this line of contact. And our goal will be to contain, to sort of minimize the spread of Russian military power uh, in Ukraine. And that's maybe not a sweeping, grand, Hollywood type conclusion to this conflict, but I think it's probably where we're going to end up. Uh, and I think we have the capacities to do well with that, but we have to have a lot of patience. That's, you know, I'm happy to develop that point, but uh, I think. Patience is an ingredient on the Western side that is really of the essence.
0: That's a great We had a show a couple weeks ago with uh, uh, Elizabeth uh, Shackelford, uh, where she was talking specifically about this idea that we need to get back to using strategic patience and diplomacy as part of the core elements of American foreign policy, uh, rather than deciding that everything looks like a nail and we use the military as the hammer to deal with it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we do need to learn from we do need to learn from some of the mistakes that we've made in the past, going back maybe to uh, to Vietnam. The other thing that we have to remember, and it's 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 a grim point, but we've never been in this kind of kinetic, fluid military conflict with the nuclear power. This just didn't happen during no. uh, the Cold War. <laughs> this is a difference with the Cold War. Yes, there was Vietnam and there was Korea, and we were on the side of the Mujahideen uh, in Afghanistan. There were lots of proxy wars during the Cold War, but it was never this direct. Uh, And we are now pretty close up to a real military conflict with a nuclear power. That doesn't mean that we yield uh, to Russia. It doesn't mean that we grant concessions that we don't want to grant. But you have to have a certain respect for that uh, set of circumstances. So if we see it as a nail that we can easily hammer in, uh, we'll be making a pretty grave mistake. We have to navigate. uh, We have to slow down. uh, And we have to think, I think, not in terms of years with the war in Ukraine. We have to think in terms of uh, of decades. And that I think when we do that, our strategy will really come into focus.
0: Let me, let me ask you some follow-up questions on that, if I could. Uh, we, we're down to about uh, 14 minutes left in the show, unfortunately. This, this hour goes by so quickly, I'm, I'm just amazed every week. Uh, Russia so Russia, Russia announced a conscription back in September. Uh, they just announced another plans to add another, I think it was 500,000 troops to the military. Uh, they have been expending a tremendous number of uh, the, Ordnance, I mean, they are really burning through ordnance fast. Uh, They still have plenty left, but it's amazing how much they've expended so far in just the last uh, 11 months. Uh, They have lost a significant number of tanks and armored personnel carriers and helicopters and and everything else. these things... It, it, is this a signal that he's like all in on regime change in Kyiv, or is this just a signal that they're going to re-strengthen the military and NATO better not try to take advantage? How, how do you read this?
1: Well, I think it's certainly the highest stakes conflict for Russia imaginable. Putin has certainly staked his presidency uh, on this war. Uh, he sees it, I think we can say that he sees it as existential uh, for Russia, uh, and he is going to, uh, sort of do what he can, uh, and muster the resources that he can, uh, to, to go forward. I mean, that said, uh, the decision to invade, we're now not looking at the world through the eyes of Vladimir Putin, but through, you know, through, uh, through different eyes, uh, the decision to invade was a horrific mistake, uh, for Putin, uh, and for, uh, Russia the sheer decision, so we can speak about how the tactics haven't worked out and Russian generalship and morale and 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 all of that and a lot of that has been disastrous but the absolute the absolute decision or the the simple decision to invade was uh an enormous strategic blunder uh for uh for Russia and that in part explains why the war has gone uh so badly but uh, I think what one senses uh, and it's hard to piece this together from the outside, but we can try. What one senses is, is that the information loops in the Russian government and the ability to really sort of talk through problems uh, and difficulties, all of that is clouded by the kind of dictatorship that Russia uh, has become. So, you know, that ammunition question should have been discussed in the Russian government early on, and maybe they should have held off over the summer instead of pounding uh, the Ukrainians with all kinds of ammunition fire and actually not achieving a lot with that. Uh, they should have taken uh, they should have taken another tack or you know sort of other matters so they don't seem able to sort of recalibrate uh and uh and rethink things what they have settled on uh is brutal attacks on Ukraine's critical infrastructure and what feels to me like a sort of nihilistic response to the war okay we're not going to go into Kiev we're not going to be welcomed as liberators we're not going to slice off half the country and return it to Russia as, as as Putin thought at the beginning of the war uh, and maybe that has even settled in on the mind of Putin, that those kind of grand heroic war aims, uh, they were probably uh, ludicrous to begin with, but uh, none of them are, are, are going to come to pass. But it's sort of what can we prevent? What can we dump on Ukraine to make it as dysfunctional as possible as a society, you know, remove their electrical grid or hit their water supply uh, and and all of this? And I'm afraid that Russia on that level can do quite a lot of uh quite a lot of damage and what they're going to turn this war into I think they've, they've done this already is a test of Western resilience okay you guys want to support Ukraine you think Ukraine's great you think Zelensky's great how much are you really willing to put up how much money how much endurance how many refugees are you willing to sort of bear uh, to keep going and to sort of prevail uh, in this war and I think there even if Russian thinking has sort of become more depressed over the last 11 months and I suspect that it has I think that there's still a certain amount of cynical optimism uh in this regard we're sort of tougher we can hold it out more we can deal with the inflation we can deal with the economic problems we can deal with mobilization we can take the casualties we can do all these things but in our view the west cannot And so western support for ukraine at a certain point is gonna uh is gonna is gonna falter but it's it's uh it's an enormously empty way to think about a war to give up on the notion of real victory uh, and just to think of civilian suffering as a way to achieve a kind of, uh, a, you know, a, a, a kind of muddling through outcome—it's—it's—it's—it's uh, uh, it's, 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 it's very, very grim to behold.
0: Uh, maybe, maybe the strategy is to destroy uh, any means of uh, having a, a functional economy in Ukraine, which will set them back twenty years. Uh, exactly. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security this week, and I'm your host, John Olson. I guess today I's Professor Michael Kimmage from Catholic University and we're discussing the war in Ukraine and Russia. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh so professor, we only have about 8 minutes left in the show this morning. Uh, if we could, let's take a look at the US, the role the US might play at this point in the crisis. Uh, if you were advising the National Security Council right now on ways to facilitate a peaceful resolution, uh, what might you suggest? You've studied the region, you've studied Russia, you've studied diplomatic history and U.S.-Russia engagement going all the way back to World War I. Is there a path forward where the United States can help Ukraine to achieve a peace that ensures their sovereignty but also, critically here, saves face for Vladimir Putin and Russia?
1: I don't know if it's possible to thread that uh, needle. I suspect. Uh, I suspect it isn't. Um, and that's in large part because of the zero-sum way that Putin understands the conflict and there's a vicious circle element to this that putin resents fears uh dislikes um ukraine's connection to the west politically and, and and militarily his war has made that connection a whole lot stronger uh but in some ways and it's a bit perverse that makes putin even more eager to sort of pursue the fight uh in ukraine and not just in ukraine but across uh, across the region, and there are probably tools that Russia has, cyber tools and o- other tools that it's not used so far, but that it may use in the future, not just against Ukraine, but against the countries that are supporting Ukraine. So let's not assume that the war has reached its highest point. I think that may still be to, uh, to come. So the U.S. has to deal with that. Uh, in no sense does Putin's zero-sum logic mean that we scale back our support uh, for Ukraine. Uh, we've made, I think, an honorable commitment and an intelligent commitment to Ukraine's Sovereignty and security. Uh, I think that we'll probably have to juggle two different balls, uh, and the first ball will be sustaining civilized and decent life in Ukraine. I don't think we can think at the moment of all of Ukraine because there are parts under Russian occupation. Until we could reasonably understand a way to get the Russians out, we'll have to just think about the parts of, of Ukraine that are not under uh, under Russian occupation. But how can we? And it's not just military support; it's also going to be supports for civilian infrastructure and for schooling for children and for medical services. I mean, that has to be a holistic effort. Obviously, Europe should be front in line when it comes to that, but the U.S. should be working hand in glove with its European allies to to sustain U- Ukraine in all the ways that the word sustain, all the meanings of the word uh, sustain. And that's going to be one difficult ball to juggle for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And again, I would emphasize decades as as the right unit of of thinking about this Uh, this conflict the other ball that we're going to have to juggle is containment of russian influence and power in ukraine uh, in the balkans uh, among ukraine's neighbors uh, turkey uh, really across the region this very large region that russia uh touches upon containing russia's military power and influence making sure that it's not spreading uh, and growing and that's a lot like u.s policy during the cold war Uh, And also, like U.S. policy in the Cold War, we have to be careful about unnecessary escalation. And I think the Biden administration has been disciplined on on this point so far. So no uniformed American military going into Ukraine. That's the right call. Um, You know, maybe certain kinds of weapons uh, should not be provided to Ukraine for the sake of avoiding escalation. We should definitely signal, as we have to the government in Ukraine, that we don't want Ukraine using U.S. weapons to strike inside of Russia. Uh, that's probably a step too far. So, you know, these are up for debate. I know that there are lots of experts who think differently than I do on those points and would just say, (laughs) go at it. And uh, you know, by any means necessary, and there might be a good uh, case for that. But I, for one, I'm happy that the Biden administration is concerned about escalation. So you contain with one hand and you sort of uh, try to keep the escalation under wraps with the uh, with the other, uh, again, as a way of sustaining the policy. Final point I'll make about US policy, and I think that the Biden administration has work to do here, they need to talk to the American people about it. They need to go out to places like Minnesota, they need to go out to places like Michigan, Wisconsin, North Dakota, Arizona, where there may not be a strong sense that Ukraine is you know, close to us. It might seem further away than it does on the East Coast. Um, because, you know, there are diaspora populations in the East Coast and and, and, and and certain linkages. And the Biden administration really needs to make the case. Why does this matter to Americans? Why do we need to support this? Why is this not a cause just for Democrats, it's for all Americans to be uh, invested in? And the next administration, whichever one it is, should be given the gift of that broad based support on, on, on the popular level. And I think Biden administration has been <laughs> policy wise. They've been shrewd. The politics of this, they could do better because it's you know it's not self evident to most of us, and it's not always clear. Uh, and that case really has to be made.
0: I do want to ask one one follow up question that's probably going to push us a little over our time limit today. Are you? Can you stick around for just a couple of extra minutes? So, Russia has invested, I mean, a tremendous amount of resources into this war with Ukraine. Uh, Putin has, over the course of his time in leadership really exercised a lot of tools the tools of national power as we say uh, to sort of gain control and influence everything in the russia near abroad Uh, is he losing control of the near abroad because of what's happening right now i've heard some really interesting reports out of the central asian uh, nations uh, not just kazakhstan where there was a bit of a flare-up here but the others you know tajikistan uzbekistan What's happening in the per- the Russian periphery that, that is catching your attention?
1: Right. It's not that Russia has lost control. It still remains a powerful actor in the region, in part for economic reasons. There are also Russian-speaking populations. And in the case of Central Asia, lots of people who work in Russia and send remittances back to Central Asia. And it's not like that has just stopped overnight. In, in, in many ways, Russia remains uh, a power player across what it describes as its uh, near abroad. But I think it's objectively the case. I don't think it's wishful thinking on our part. I think it's objectively true that Russia has weakened uh, itself. Uh, and one thing that it's shown itself to be, it's really not what you want to do as a dictator or as an autocrat. It's shown itself to be <laughs> fallible, inefficient, incompetent. Uh, you know, I think we've all been a bit shocked by uh, the the kind of low performance, low low quality performance of the Russian military. So Putin himself uh, has reduced the fear uh, of of Russia, not not one hundred hundred percent, but he's uh, he's uh, he's diminished it. The other thing that's happened is that Russia is distracted. You know, the whole weight and energy of government in Moscow is now going toward the war in Ukraine uh, because it's a huge operation and because they're in many ways losing the war. So it's just a consuming subject, and they have less ability to deal diplomatically with other. Uh, areas and other crises. And I think where you see this most uh, strongly is in the South Caucasus. So Azerbaijan, Armenia, Russia, in the way that it does, sort of played both sides against each other and was sort of the broker in the middle. Uh, In 2020, it brokered a peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Now you have Azerbaijan pushing the envelope there, shutting off transit routes and doing certain things. Russia is supposed to be the partner of Armenia, but it's sort of asleep at the wheel or it's just not, uh, not present because I think that in Moscow there are too many other things uh, that are going on so it's losing clout uh in uh in uh, in that respect and then we'll just sort of see where the Russian economy goes but you know GDP is declining in Russia certain technological changes are going to be a lot more difficult because of sanctions you know Russia's throwing huge amounts of money uh into the war so it just have it may have less to offer in that regard uh, as well and of course China is picking up the slack there and, and sort of pulling Russia a bit more coercively into its Orbit, which is another way or or manner in which Russia is sort of losing uh, influence. So again, the point about this war being a strategic blunder for Russia, you can look at the Ukraine component of that, but you might want to look more broadly at the way in which Russia has shot itself pretty
0: directly in the foot. Uh, I saw especially in the Central Asian uh, nations as an opportunity for the United States to engage in some really excellent dialogue and support. Uh, Professor Michael Timmage, you have a, a relatively new book, came out in 2020, uh, the, the Abandonment of the West. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Sure. Uh,
1: so that book was uh, it is a kind of history of American foreign policy going back to the 1890s. Uh, and it acknowledges certain problems with the strong commitment historically that the U.S. has had to this notion of the West, meaning sort of Western culture, Western civilization, that this has uh, at times been an excuse for uh, a racist way of conducting business and looking at the world uh, and at times has led the U.S. to sort of a uh, kind of crusading foreign policy uh, adventurism. So that's you know one part of the argument. But I think the bigger part of the argument is that this connection to the West has been very important for the U.S. Uh, over time uh, and that what the U.S. took from the Western intellectual tradition was a commitment to liberty and self-government uh, with the American Revolution but very importantly it wove those two ideas liberty and self-government into its foreign policy especially in the 20th century that's sort of the best of the American foreign policy uh tradition uh and that's not what we want to uh, abandon we sort of want to remember how important that is so that book is 2020. Uh, I'm sort of glad to say in a way although I hate everything about the war that's being fought in Ukraine that a lot of what I was thinking about in 2020 in terms of what we should do I feel like we have been pretty good about doing over the course of the last year. So have we cared about liberty and self-government in Ukraine? I think the answer is yes. It matters for our security. It matters for the larger relationship with Russia. But it's significant that in 2019, Ukraine held a democratic election and that Zelensky is uh, a democrat. That uh, is an important part of the story. Have we worked hard to keep the transatlantic alliance up and running and make it an alliance that's dedicated to certain values as well as to hard national security interest. I would say that the answer to that question is also yes. There are lots of things to worry about on the horizon, (laughs) lots of problems. But I think in terms of where we were in 2020, uh, I would say that the U.S. is in a pretty decent place in 2022 when it comes to being committed to the West and being committed to what you could describe as the best of this uh, sort of uh, Cold War story. There, too, I was thinking about the Cold War. What can we learn from the Cold War? That's what I'm always trying to think about, and again, there were lots of things that went wrong for the US during the Cold War, but the commitment to Europe, commitment to West Germany, uh, commitment to a kind of humane and decent West was really to me the best of US Cold War policy. Uh, And so I think we as Americans try to keep on learning from that history as, as we face the perilous crises of the 21st century.
0: Unfortunately, we definitely hit the end of our show for today. Uh, today's edition of National Security This Week. Professor Michael Kimmage, thank you for sharing time with us today and teaching us, really, about uh, Russia and Ukraine and why this current conflict is so important. I'll just remind people, uh, Professor Kimmage, that you had two articles that literally just came out, uh, co-authored with uh, Maria Lipman, uh, an article called Wartime Putinism, uh, what the disaster in Ukraine has done to the Kremlin and to Russia uh, in foreign affairs, and then also Putin's last stand uh, which is in the current edition, uh, current issue, I guess, of Foreign Affairs, uh, Putin's Last Stand, The Promise and Peril of Russian Defeat, with uh, co-authored with Lyanna Fitz. Uh, both excellent articles. Excellent. Thank articles. you. Uh, that, unfortunately, closes out the edition. Professor Michael Kimmich from Catholic University, thanks for joining us.
1: John, thank you so much. It was just a joy to be with you.
0: That closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week and a fantastic coming weekend. Take care, everyone.
2: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecurity for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.